Hi there! Welcome to Totally Fantastic Title. I'm Krista Wallace. With all the crud going on in the world, it's always nice to have a little perspective tossed your way. If you follow me on Instagram, you'll have seen the story about the band setting up in the basketball court behind my house, and that it turned out to be a memorial and dedication ceremony slash celebration for a young woman named Karen Kwong. On Saturday would have been Karen's 17th birthday, but she died of a rare form of cancer on October 4th, 2020. She was a star basketball player at her high school uh, and had intended to go to SFU to play basketball. Um, She just had a huge passion for the sport. She apparently used to play at this court all the time. So the city of Port Coquitlam agreed to dedicate the basketball court and name it after her, which is super cool. It was a lovely ceremony, lots of stories from friends and family about how much Karen meant to them. And sounds like she was just a remarkable young woman. I'm very glad I attended the event, even though I didn't know Karen. And the band is made up of a couple of really good friends of Karen's. Um, They're called Hicklestock, and they performed after all of the ceremony and everything. And they were really good. They finished their set just before the rain began. So yeah, stories like this one about this young woman help keep things in perspective when I feel like the negativity of the world is going to swallow me. You know, on the other hand, there are a lot of terminal illnesses out there. Many, many forms of cancer, obviously. Who hasn't been touched by cancer? My mom died of ovarian cancer. Gord Downey and Neil Peart died of aggressive brain cancers. Parkinson's, which killed my dad. Alzheimer's. Terry Pratchett died of Alzheimer's, as did John Mann, the lead singer of Spirit of the West. That's just a few of them, those diseases that can kill you. If only there were some way of preventing them. We see all these runs for the cure, the Terry Fox run, cops for cancer, and so forth. And then we see people who protest at hospitals. If it's possible to prevent a thing that could kill you and that you might transmit to somebody else. (sighs) Look, those of us who have done the right thing, who have used every tool offered to us to stop the spread of this damn disease, we should not be punished by lockdowns and restrictions. And our healthcare heroes, the people we were cheering for at seven o'clock every night at the beginning of all of this, they should not be continually punished either. You may recall, last week, Griffin went on her first date, was it a date? With Mateo, and he enthusiastically agreed to audition for her band. Griffin and the Spurious Correlations by Krista Wallace Chapter 14, May 16th Wednesday, I had the pleasure of taking transit to work in the sunshine for a change. I had slept well, but my head felt woolly, and in truth I wanted nothing more than to just stay in bed and sleep all day. 
I hadn't had a day off, a complete break from everything, in ten days, longer if you count the snifter wedding, for which we'd had rehearsals for days beforehand. Exhaustion was an overcoat with chains sewn into the lining. Its weight pulled me closer to the ground and filled me with a yearning to become one with the earth or the carpet or the sidewalk. Every horizontal surface I encountered... The tiny thought of my other band added a guilty ingot of lead to one of the pockets of the overcoat, and I fervently hoped I could be relieved of it soon. The sunshine was an elixir, bringing warmth to my very core. It didn't warm me enough to remove the overcoat, but it allowed me to open a few buttons. The question, as I boarded the bus on my street, piece of toast with peanut butter in hand, which the driver ignored, bless her heart, was... Would the rest of my band like Mateo at tonight's audition? The very thought of it coaxed a smile to my lips, not to mention the break-dancing elves in my belly. I got off the bus and climbed up the stairs to the train platform. The train journey was fine, except for the guy with nasty body odor sitting next to me, followed by a packed bus ride where a woman kept bumping into me while gripping an overhead strap and coughing into her elbow with poor aim. Once I pushed through and popped out of the bus doors, anticipation of rehearsal gave my feet buoyancy as I walked to the restaurant. I was mentally figuring out the fingering for Signor Mouse and getting excited about trying it. I passed my homeless friend on the corner and reminded him to come and see me sometime. As soon as the words were out of my mouth, I realized the offer sounded like something other than lunch, so I hastened to the door. My hand grasped the door pull, but I hesitated. Would anyone mention the bins of cinnamon buns? I frowned and told myself I could just lie my way out of any responsibility. They were intact when I left the kitchen, I would say, if questioned. I would feign outrage, and all would be exactly the same as it had been every other day my work had been sabotaged. Truth be told, the waste hurt me deep inside, but the threat to my dignity and pride was a greater risk. Having talked myself through that issue, I crossed my fingers that my baking task for the day would be something simple— I wasn't terribly hopeful, though, considering yesterday's fiasco wasn't even a complicated task. I steeled myself and entered. My heels dragged as I meandered between the dark wood tables of the dining room and approached the kitchen door. What would greet me on the other side? I pushed through, and the doors made a quiet flup-flup behind me. Not a trace of cinnamon or brown sugar or bread remained. The bins, I saw with blessed relief, were empty. Phew! "'Griffin, you doll!' Chef fluttered over like a dancer in Swan Lake. "'I have a special request for you today. I'm sure with your skill, nay, your genius, you will be up for the task.' "'I'll do my best.' "'That's good enough for me. After all, your mediocrity is far beyond anyone else's best.' He gave me his instruction and twirled off. "'My task for the day was to make sugar cookies.' I figured Phoenix must have been tired of testing my mettle. I didn't even need Stephen's help, which was good because he was nowhere to be seen. I went and dropped off my gear, then returned to the kitchen, where I scooped, dumped, mixed, tasted. Not bad. The simplicity of my task was an unfamiliar juxtaposition with the frantic carrying on of the other chefs. They scurried like pigeons, circling around each other, moving dishes from one counter to another, stirring things, setting pots on stoves, sliding roasting dishes into ovens, pulling heated pans out. I had stuck my cookie dough in the fridge to chill for a while, so I hesitantly approached the other section of the kitchen. 
I didn't want to get in the way, but I was super curious. I hadn't thought of it before being over my head busy with my own responsibilities, but I had no idea what else was on the menu at this restaurant. I had continued to bring my own lunch from day one since I'd never been offered a meal or anything. It seemed to me I had never actually laid eyes on a plate of food going out of the kitchen into the dining room. How airheaded was I that I hadn't noticed? The cooks seemed to still be able to maneuver around the kitchen without bashing into me. They were all very aware, which was neat. When I got close enough to see right into the saucepans and dishes coming out of the oven, I stopped short. It was as if I had found myself in a black-and-white film. Except food in a black-and-white film still looks, well, like food. This was all just masses of gray. In that moment, I also noticed I couldn't smell anything. No meat cooking, no sauces simmering, no brightly colored vegetables steaming, no large bowls of salad greens. That thing there looked like a massive bowl of what might be gray Play-Doh, but without the weight. A cook picked it up one-handed and passed it to another cook with the same ease as if she had passed a paper plate with one lettuce leaf. I backed away very slowly, every inch of skin on my body crinkling with horror. My throat constricted, and I fought an urge to flee. I opened my mouth to say, what the hell is going on, to a cook named... Wait, come to think of it, I still didn't know any of their names, and that is when I fled into the dining room, which was still dark and empty. It was eleven o'clock. Shouldn't there be a few customers there for early lunch? The restaurant was on the edge of downtown. Surely there were businesses nearby which would have people who needed a coffee break. And certainly there ought to have been servers rolling cutlery and serviettes, making sure condiment bottles and salt and pepper shakers were full, or placing water glasses on tables. I had never worked in a restaurant, but I had eaten at a few, and I was pretty sure these things would have to take place. In fact, shouldn't my bandmates have been in there getting the place ready for customers? I stalked through the dining room and burst through the front door onto Powell Street. It looked like it always did. It was one way, westbound, and several cars moved along it as I would have expected. Not busy. Seeing the spot where I'd last spoken to the homeless fellow, I glanced up and down the road. I didn't see him, and I hoped he was all right. It was just as well, because if he did come by, what on earth would I have given him to eat? Here, dude, have this dish of ashes. I went back inside and saw Phoenix heading through the dim dining room to a door at the far, dark end, a door I hadn't noticed before. I hunkered back against the wall so he wouldn't notice me. Once he had passed through the door, I almost ran toward it, weaving through the dark chairs and tables. I hoped it was an office and that Rickenbacker would be there. I had no interest in talking to Phoenix. He was a nut bar. But Rickenbacker had got me into this. He owed me an explanation. Through the door, I found myself in a hallway so brightly lit, in contrast with the dimness of the dining room, I raised my arm to shade my eyes. Bright colors glared at me. This hallway was familiar. The lime-green walls with sky-blue stripes, the pale orange carpet, the closed doors on either side, of which I observed the door I had come through was one. Either Rickenbacker was so fond of his choice of decor that he used it everywhere, or, and this just didn't make sense at all, I was now standing in the very hallway I had followed the night I met Matteo for the first time. But that was impossible, because that hallway had been in a completely different part of town, blocks and blocks away. If I were to follow this hallway to that archway down there, would it open up into a sort of foyer with a cushiony couch, a mirrored desk, and a faux fur rug? 
The place was quiet as a cave, eerie. I moved farther down the hall, stopping short when I heard hushed voices from around the corner where I was sure I would see the place where I had been served foaming wine. My breath coming in tiny puffs, I tiptoed along the corridor until I could press myself against the corner. I recognized the voices. He's an MGC. Can he even do that? That was Phoenix. I believe he must. Rickenbacker. It would be extremely out of character for him to refuse. I had to see what was happening. I simply had to. I got down on hands and knees so that when I peered around the corner, my head was less likely to be seen. What say you, MGC? Rickenbacker went on. Do you think you can do this? I slowly, slowly let just one eye see past the edge of the wall. The hair on the back of my head rose to attention. Mateo stood there in silence. Both of my employers had their backs to me, thank goodness, but Mateo faced me. His jaw was slack and his eyes... You know that spinning spiral image they use in cartoons to show that somebody's been hypnotized? Well, that's what Mateo's eyes looked like. The man I was in love with was behaving like a zombie. I give you permission, said Rickenbacker. Continue to show your mastery. Mateo's eyes focused, and he gave Rickenbacker a tiny bow before turning around like a wobbly dancer in a music box and heading to where I believed there to be a door that, at least when I went through it over a week ago, led to a dingy hallway with plush carpet and foil wallpaper. My spine overtaken by the willies, I pulled my head back before the other two noticed me. I leapt to my feet and turned back the way I'd come. I saw the door at the end of the hallway, the one which had been the entrance into the theater-like space just last week. I took a step toward it, and then every scary movie wherein the camera slowly approaches a doorway at the end of a hallway came to my mind, and I froze. The icy fingers of terror clawed up my chest and throat, threatening to squeeze the life out of me. I'm not ashamed to say my heart pounded on the bars of my ribcage to be let out, and I fled back into the dining room. Where there were now several patrons and servers milling about, rolling cutlery and serviettes, filling condiment bottles, and placing water glasses. A strange high-pitched hum began in my chest along with a squeezy feeling, and it grew as it climbed up my esophagus. Looking over my shoulder to see if Phoenix or Rickenbacker was following me to punish me for whatever it was I had witnessed, they weren't. I ran and didn't stop running until I was back in the kitchen, and by the time I got there the humming was nearly a scream, but I gasped it out as I burst through the doors. I leaned my back against the door, shaking and sweating, panting as if I'd just run a marathon. My heart hammered so hard it could have kneaded bread dough. Enough was enough. I allowed myself a few moments in that meditative pose until I could shrug off my supreme perturbation, shove it down into an abyss at the back of my mind, and get back to work. The song on the radio was the tinkly piano of Music Box Dancer only a wonky, out-of-tune music box dancer that made me cringe. What had all that been about? M.G.C., they had said. What did that mean? Mateo's initials? No, his last name was McCallum. I took several deep breaths and pressed my palms to my eyes. So much about this place and this job and this whole experience was just plain freakishly bizarre that there really was not much point trying to figure it out. I pulled the sugar cookie dough out of the fridge and started rolling it out, thereby exorcising the fierce panic that had gripped me. 
My mouth watered as glorious aromas of fried chicken and cream of mushroom soup wafted in my direction. I stopped dead. I did not head over to the other kitchen area. Just no. My mind had been taken over by aliens. I was sure of it. Maybe I was coming down with a cold and my sinuses were plugged up. Yeah, yeah, that could be it. I focused on the task at hand. I found a simple round cookie cutter, which I used. As I lifted them onto baking sheets, the cookies morphed into high-relief tomb effigies of various monarchs and fairy tale characters, all recumbent and peaceful. From then on, I closed my eyes as I worked. I flung them into the ovens and sat on the work table with my back to them while they baked, air-guitaring through Gotta Have You and a couple other tunes. I had never looked forward to a break more than after those cookies were done so I could go to rehearsal. The vibrations that flowed through the room when we created beautiful harmonies were a sound bath, more relaxing than any massage, more soothing to my nerves, more effective at sloughing off anxieties and negativity. I knew that a session of making music was all I needed to get me through anything. Look how it had helped this whole time I had been working at Salamanders. Despite all the crap my boss had put me through, there was still no place I would rather be than here. Well, not here, in the kitchen, in the rehearsal studio. Speaking of which, I wanted to be there now. With oven mitts on, I pulled the trays out and set them on the cooling racks. They looked like a bird's-eye view of a massive parking lot. I looked about warily for anyone or anything that could sabotage this project, but by that time I had almost convinced myself that nothing I did here in the kitchen was fully in my control, no matter how hard I tried. What I could control was the music, and since that was the real reason I was here, I put the oven mitts away and left the kitchen. I heard Mateo's guitar playing before I got to the door of the rehearsal room, and I slowed my pace. Should I walk into the room and ask where he had been? Should I ask him about the scene I had witnessed? Should I ask him what MGC meant? It took me all of a split second to answer no to every one of those questions. I didn't think he had seen me, and obviously I was not meant to overhear any of it, and now was not the time to add complexity to the already complicated situation I was in. I would maintain the status quo. I walked in with an air of cool and collected. He stopped playing, his blue eyes brightening and his face lighting up as he saw me. Hey, beautiful. Had he really just said that? The rush of elation was like a sudden wave whooshing me into the room, grinning like the Cheshire cat. I blushed way too much like an idiot to be described as cool and collected. I know, I'm pathetic. I decided I didn't care. I didn't need to know about something that was between Mateo and our employers. I pulled out my guitar and slipped the strap around my shoulders. My bandmates poked around with tuning and plucking out riffs. The drummer played a fill over and over. The keyboard player stared at himself in the mirror and swung his hair around. Good bunch of guys, these bandmates of mine. These entirely unruffled bandmates. None of them looked stressed. None of them looked rushed. Not a one of them looked like he'd suffered through any kind of confrontation in recent history. And I had a bad feeling. Say, Mateo, how come I haven't seen you guys working in the dining room the last few days? I was told at the start of this how important it is to work in the restaurant end of things as well. He plucked notes and adjusted his tuning. He shrugged and shone his blue eyes on me. Phoenix told us to take some days off, what with the big gig coming up and all. 
Had he clocked me on the side of the head with a two-by-six, I'd have been able to write a paper comparing the two experiences. But I have a big gig coming up, too. How come he doesn't give me any time off? Now I was cross. I had been riding a wave of elation which had opened my weighty overcoat, but now indignation filled the pockets. Mateo put his hand on my shoulder. Griffin girl, I really enjoyed last night. He gazed down at me with admiration. The endearment didn't work today. How could he stand there and blatantly ignore the fact that Phoenix was incontrovertibly an asshole to me? I did too, I said with a frown, but that doesn't make this okay. Of course not. Was that the best he could do? How irksome that he couldn't bring himself to defend me. He smelled sweetish today. I found myself very interested in the abstract design that played across the front of his T-shirt and admired anew, with a racing pulse, the way it fit perfectly on his perfect chest. I gave it an A+, but I was still irked. We played a song about continuing to believe, which I sang with less conviction than usual. My voice caught on some of the high notes because I wasn't relaxed. I tried to lose myself in the harmony, but it lacked potency. After a few more songs, it was time for me to go ice sugar cookies, and I figured I would leave after that. So, I'll see you at the school tonight? I asked. Mateo nodded. Definitely. 8.30? Yep. I confirmed the directions and we parted ways, and for the first time I didn't feel like I was tearing myself away, which made me feel worse. I hoped Phoenix would be there so I could confront him, and the thought of it made my palms sweat, but when I pushed through the swinging doors into the kitchen, he wasn't there. Part of me said, yay, because the confrontation could be put off. The other part of me was mad because I had started to gear myself up for it. Why should it take so much effort for me to stand up for myself? I walked through the heady aroma of deliciousness that the kitchen had become, to my side where the tiny sarcophaguses sat in tidy rows. Stephen was there, stirring something in a large mixing bowl. His head tipped in my direction, but he didn't show me his eyes. He held out the bowl in a spatula. Thanks. I scooped a bit of the glaze he had created and began to gently smear it on a cookie that looked like Mary Queen of Scots, complete with the hands pointing up in prayer position. Though the glaze was beige, it turned the cookie into a colorized version. Stephen helped, and by the time we were finished, we had tray upon tray of gorgeous sculptures. I would have been proud of them if I had believed they were actually my own creation. Instead, I felt a measure of relief that they hadn't exploded as I picked them up, and how twisted was my life that that was even something to cross my mind. On the bus ride home, I decided to forgive Mateo. It wasn't his fault any more than it was Jillian's fault that our mother was a jerk to me. It would have been nice for him to notice I had been treated differently, but really, it was all on Phoenix. I pushed my anger at that douche canoe aside so I could look forward to the auditions in the evening. I really hoped the man I loved would make a good impression on Calvin and the others. If Matteo could join my band, we could still make music together without Phoenix breathing down my neck. If Matteo could join my band, my life would be complete. May 16th, Evening we usually rented rehearsal space. Occasionally we rehearsed at my music store, but sometimes, like tonight, we rehearsed in the high school band room where our bass player, Cameron, taught. 
Convenient, well-equipped, the amps and stuff were kind of old, but they were serviceable and it meant I didn't have to carry my own, and most important, it was free. The door of the school was open, which told me that Cameron had to be around somewhere, though all was quiet as I stepped inside. The music rooms were on one side of the hall, and the theater was on the other. My footsteps made little sound as I walked along between photos of school theatrical productions and music concerts. There was one with Cameron lying on his side with a few of his students holding him up in the air and the other students doing jazz hands all around him. I only ever taught one-on-one, of course, so the concept of having so many students was kind of neat. Only kind of. I hesitated outside the band room, feeling like I had just come off a roller coaster. I wasn't sure what would greet me on the other side of the door. These were guys I knew and had been playing with for years, but also guys I had neglected for over a week and at times had wished would disappear. Would they call me out? Would it be just like before, as if nothing had happened? Would we talk about Jason and the wedding fiasco? Would I be able to relax and be myself? Or would I feel self-conscious the whole time, overthink everything I said, and be compelled to leave out pieces of information, thereby making myself feel like a complete tool? I suspected the latter, but only time would tell. We had agreed that we, the band, would get together and play for a bit, kind of loosen up our chops, and then have the two auditionees arrive an hour apart from each other. That way we'd have time to get a real feel for how they each played, and maybe even a brief discussion in between. We didn't want a situation where they were showing off in front of each other. We wanted to get to know each on his own. Todd was expected at 7.30, and Matteo at 8.30. I pushed the door open at 6.30. There was nobody else there. I walked about three steps into the room and stopped, my breaths coming hard and fast as if I'd been jogging. My fight-or-flight response was clicking in. Like Wesley Crusher punching in coordinates on the Starship Enterprise, all I needed was for Captain Picard to say, Engage, and I'd be out of that room so fast you'd think I had jumped into warp speed. At the same time, a morsel of sadness planted itself inside me, kind of like the dollop of chocolate inside certain ice cream treats, only this was the opposite of the feeling brought on by chocolate. Since when did walking into a rehearsal studio to play music give me the urge to run away? Hey, stranger! A cheerful voice behind me startled me into movement. I turned around. Move on in or you'll get plowed under, Calvin said with a chuckle. He was smiling at me and I let out an enormous breath of relief. That was the only clue that I had actually been afraid of how he'd react to my being here. When had I ever been afraid of Calvin in any way? I realized then that I was blocking the path of anybody else getting into the room. Andy and Cameron were behind him and I was the dam. Oh, geez, sorry, I said lamely, and nearly tripped over my own feet as I moved the rest of the way in. I gravitated to the same corner I usually stand in and slid my guitar off my back, mentally bracing myself for the onslaught of accusations and questions. Where had I been? Why wasn't I interested in playing anymore? Who else had I been playing with? Decided not to take it back, Andy said. What? I didn't have a clue what he was talking about. The telly, he clarified. You had thought of taking it back after the wedding. What? Oh, oh, right, I laughed. Yeah, no, I figured I'd regret that. I unzipped the case, revealing the telecaster in its sunburst splendor. Well, good, Andy said, wheeling his folding hand truck over to his favorite keyboard-playing corner between my stuff and the drum kit. 
Calvin had already shucked off his jacket and was making hi-hat noises and adjusting the position of toms and cymbals while Cameron had plonked his bass amp down on the other side of the drum kit. I liked being across from the bass and drums in rehearsal. So you've got someone coming tonight too, huh? Andy went on. My guy is a friend of my cousin. No idea if he's any good. Who's yours? He opened up his X-shaped stand with a thud on the floor. I looked down at the guitar across my belly, ostensibly to tune it. He's a friend of a friend, I said, going with the story Matteo and I had agreed upon. Pretty good from what I could tell, I added with a vagueness that would hopefully not inspire further questions. My fingers trembled on the tuning peg. I needn't have worried. Hey, do you notice that it's a lot quieter here without Jason? Andy said. Tell me again why we put up with that guy for so long, Cameron added as he grabbed microphone stands from the corner of the room. Andy laughed. Ask Griffin why we put up with that guy for so long. Hey, none of you complained to me, I set up a stand for myself. How was I supposed to know he was so universally repellent? We were too polite, Cameron threw back. How could you of all people not have noticed he was so universally repellent? Ugh, I don't even know. It's kind of embarrassing. Andy said, a lot embarrassing. Calvin piped up. Leave her alone. Can't you see she feels bad enough? He seemed unusually chipper. So, our first bit of criteria tonight, Cameron said, grabbing coils of mic cable off the hooks on the wall, needs to be to find out whether these guys have a sense of humor. How would you notice if someone had a sense of humor? Andy pulled mics out of the box. Cameron hung a cable on each stand for us to plug in ourselves. Ask them to tell us a drummer joke. Nah, that's way too easy, I said. And just like that, we fell back into our old camaraderie. The quips flew around the room as we finished setting up and warmed up, and I became aware of a gap in my music psyche. Well, first I became aware that I had a music psyche, then I noticed it had a gap in it. And as the chatter and laughter swirled around the room, bouncing off the sound baffles and the awful carpet and the, the posters of famous people playing their instruments to inspire the youth who used this room during the day, that gap slowly filled itself in as if with polyphila. I listened to these guys, my pals, toss playful insults around and realized that if there was one thing missing from rehearsals with the spurious correlations. It was the banter. But before I could really take note, we got down to business. So what should we get them to play? Cameron noodled and tapped harmonics on his bass. Let them choose something from our list? Calvin said, that makes sense. Griffin? I looked up from tuning. What? Calvin smiled at me with a kind of patience. You're the leader of the band. How do you want to handle this? I took a deep breath as a flush spread to the roots of my hair. When words finally came to me, they rushed out as if I was ejecting a mouthful of bees. That sounds good. Let them pick something. That way they can choose a song they know and will do well on. I went back to tuning. Next thing I knew, Calvin's shadow appeared on the floor below the neck of my guitar. He spoke quietly. You seem nervous. Everything okay? I looked up at him. Um... Yeah, I'm good. I don't know. I guess it's important. I hope... Mm, I caught myself and quickly turned the initial into a thoughtful hum. Mm, one of these guys will work out. Calvin didn't seem to notice my little flub. And if they don't, no big deal. The right person will come along. He kept looking at me, and I tried to think of a response. But before I did, he shrugged his shoulders, gave me a grin, and went back to his drum kit. 
For some reason, that small encounter left me feeling like I had been bumped while standing on one foot. It was an odd feeling, but I steadied myself as our first auditionee came into the room. Todd was about twenty, and he seemed nice enough, but it was tricky to find a song he knew. He scanned the list I handed him and said, I don't really know these. I ulped inwardly. No? Like Bad Moon Rising? Uh, no, I've never heard of it. Who on earth didn't know Bad Moon Rising? How about I'm a Believer? I think I've heard that one. Seriously? How about I threw out the one suggestion I would stake my life on every guitarist knowing, Smoke on the Water? He shook his head, and I thought Andy was going to tip his keyboard over. I'm more of a Beatles guy, Todd said. Okay, great, we can do the Beatles. What do you feel like playing? We finally settled on Taxman, and I was impressed with his choosing one of my favorite Harrison tunes, but he didn't do all that well in the solo and didn't handle our improvised ending too well either. He fared a bit better in I Feel Fine. A bit. We discovered he knew all the small things, and that was his best performance, but it was too little too late. Andy said, So, Todd, are you a Whovian? This was a clever test to see if Todd liked our collective favorite science fiction show. Oh, I know them, Todd said. They played Teenage Wasteland, right? I nearly burst out laughing, and I thought the other three guys would keel over. Poor Todd had not only failed Andy's test, but he'd failed a second test we had no intention of giving him. I smiled at Todd ferociously as I restrained myself from correcting him on the actual title of that famous song by The Who. After we thanked him and he left, Cameron said, Sorry, Andy, but if you're auditioning to be a lead guitarist and you only know three songs, hadn't you better actually be able to play them? Hey, don't blame me. I told you I didn't know the guy, Andy protested. I hope you're going to poke your cousin in the eye, Calvin said. Or put glue in her shoes, Cameron suggested. Jeez, you guys, I don't think she even heard him before. She just said, hey, I know a guy who says he plays guitar, and that was that. You're officially on new person probation, I said. Don't get me wrong. Nobody was mad. We were actually killing ourselves laughing the whole time. He had been a nice enough kid, just not for us. Your guy had better show more promise, Griffin, Calvin said with a wink. Or what, you're going to poke me in the eye? Oh, I'll come up with something way worse, Calvin grinned. Yeah, because you ought to know better than Andy's cousin. Cameron was interrupted by a knock on the door. He was closest, so he raised the neck of his base and opened it. My heart skyrocketed, and I tried desperately not to care who came in, but failed as miserably as poor Todd. Mateo stepped in, clad in a leather bomber jacket and carrying his guitar and amp. His smile beamed around the room, and I felt myself relax. No zombie swirling eyes. Hey guys, I'm Mateo. He quickly scanned the gathering before settling on me. Hi, Griffin. I felt all melty again. This guy was definitely not normal. Was there anybody else who could step into a room and simply introduce himself and have that kind of effect? He didn't pay any special attention to me, which allowed me to release a bit of tension. The others greeted him graciously. Cameron showed Mateo where to set up, and Andy plugged in his amp for him while Mateo opened his guitar case. Calvin watched him as though he'd never seen someone pull out a guitar. So how do you two know each other? He asked as if just needing a reminder. Matteo looked at him and smiled. I'm a friend of a friend. He sounded oddly rehearsed, and it worried me. 
Would he have trouble pretending we didn't know each other? Oh, yeah, which friend? Annoyance flashed through my mind. Why did Calvin sound so mistrusting? It didn't help that Matteo didn't respond right away. My sister, I said, hastily covering up what Matteo and I had failed to discuss. Jillian, I added for Matteo's benefit. Matteo slipped his strap over his head and grinned at Calvin. Jillian. I know Jillian, Calvin said with an uncharacteristic lukewarmness. Good friend? Anyway, thanks for coming, Matteo, I said in an effort to put an end to whatever that was. This is Cameron, Andy, and Calvin on drums. A weird vibe was floating through the space like a nasty fart and I needed to dissipate it. Cameron, do you want to hand Matteo our list? See if there's anything on there you'd like to play. Cameron set the list on Matteo's music stand. Matteo looked it over while checking his tuning. How about we start with Go Your Own Way? Good one, I said, in an I have never played that song with this man before, not ever sort of tone. Oh, sure. Calvin sounded like he didn't believe it possible that this guy could hope to get the tricky opening of the song without practice. I don't have a twelve-string here, I said apologetically, but we can do it anyway. We had a quick discussion about vocals, and then Calvin counted us in. Now, the opening is tricky, because the lead guitar sets up the rhythm, and then it's tricky for me as rhythm guitarist to find beat one for my entrance, and then it's tricky for the lead vocal for the same reason. It's less tricky after that for the drummer to find beat one for his entrance, but still tricky. I locked eyes with Matteo to get our respective entrances, and then turned to Calvin so we could hit that sixth bar together. I'm pretty sure I saw Calvin's eyes pop out when the timing of the beginning was flawless. His eyebrows definitely went up, because I was watching him, when Matteo's voice rang out so clearly on the high notes. We all sang the harmony in the chorus, and the other guys were grinning like we'd just signed a record deal. Nobody had expected this to go so well, except Matteo and me, of course. Shh. Hoots and hollers helped to make the big finish to the song, and I knew that my band was impressed with my potential recruit. Then I remembered I had to look pleasantly surprised, too. That was awesome, I said. Good solo. The others threw in their compliments as well, and Matteo smiled in that shy sort of way of his. Thanks, he said. Is there another one you'd like to do? Calvin said. Mateo suggested rock and roll, and I have to say I was kind of pleased to show off my Robert Plant impression. Calvin went over the opening a bit and then said, Okay, let's go. The drums have the intro, so he didn't bother counting in, but began. Two bars in, he messed up the timing, stopped, and said, Hang on, hang on. Started again, messed up again, did a little frustrated-at-himself shriek, and stopped. <laughs> Been a while, he laughed. Mateo stood with his fingers poised and ready. He smiled. Do you need to take a minute? Nah, I reassured him as Calvin started again. It's just a gray matter hiccup. <laughs> ah, said Mateo, raising his eyebrows almost doubtfully. I thought I detected a bit of a tone, but then Calvin nailed the bit, and the guitars had to come in, and then I had to sing, and remembered that I hoped Mateo would be impressed with my Robert Plant impression. It had been a mere moment, but it left an infinitesimal mark. At the end of the song, Matteo smiled at me. That was awesome. I couldn't help but be pleased and resolved to dismiss the glimpse of passive aggression, but it still didn't sit well, especially given it was a comment on Calvin. We got him to pick a couple of other tunes, and we basically had a terrific jam session. I was blown away when I saw it was already ten o'clock. 
Calvin came out from behind his drum kit to shake Mateo's hand amid enthusiastic responses from the other two. Thanks for coming out. Oh, hey, no problem. It was fun. As he packed up his guitar, Mateo said, You guys, and Gal, are really good. He glanced at me only briefly. We'll be in touch, I said, truly relieved that it had gone so well. I shook his warm, firm hand and allowed myself to look into those clear azure eyes of his, all the while putting massive effort into not showing my true feelings for this man for the rest of my band to see. He left, and the rest of us looked wordlessly at each other for a few seconds. When we heard the outside door of the school shut, Cameron broke the silence. Holy shit, who was that guy? Some sort of superhero, Andy said. Like, he comes out of nowhere, does this amazing thing, and then he's gone. Cameron turned to Andy. You didn't even bother asking him if he's a Doctor Who fan. Who cares? If he can play like that, we can train him to be a Doctor Who fan. Cameron grinned at me. Looks like we've found our replacement for Jason. In more ways than one, Calvin said in an undertone. Andy and Cameron chattered away as they packed up their gear. What do you mean by that? I looked at Calvin with kind of mixed feelings, hoping I looked neutral. But he was already looking at me, and that didn't help the blush situation. He shrugged and started back to gather his drumstick case. Nothing. He didn't look at me as he slid sticks into the leather sheath. Then he seemed to change his mind. Just be careful, that's all. Dumping Jason was good for you. But that was only, like, ten days ago. And this guy's obviously someone you would be attracted to. Pause while two cars collided inside my chest with a crunch. And then, I'm not at all sure how I feel about that remark. I'm sorry, he said defensively. It just seems soon, that's all. Soon for what? I demanded. Calvin had no way of knowing Mateo and I even knew each other outside of this room. Calvin put up his hands in surrender. I saw the way you... He looked at you. He turned away. Look, never mind, I'm sorry. I was obviously mistaken. When had Calvin started noticing how other guys looked at me? The bubbling anger in my gut was not at all calmed by the fact that Calvin was right on point. I could think of nothing to say that I could be confident wouldn't come out sounding super snarky, so I packed up my stuff in silence. Okay, guys, talk soon, I said, and left. See you Saturday, I heard Calvin holler behind me. I was propelled to the bus stop by a strange jetpack sort of emotion. Calvin had never been one to voice his opinion on any guy I was attracted to. Jason turned out to be a jerk in the end, but Calvin never said word one during all the time Jason and I were a couple. He had supported, he hadn't judged. Any time I was crabby about Jason, Calvin had been there for me to lean on. He had never said, I told you so, or even suggested I break up with him. He just allowed me to make my choices. So what was with this sudden commentary on my hypothetical relationship with a guy Calvin had just met and didn't even know I already knew? It pissed me off. I boarded the bus feeling cross and frowny. Sounds like Mateo's in. Though what the heck is up with Calvin? So if everything goes the way Griffin anticipates, all her troubles are over, right? Tune in next week when Griffin says, No. It's voting day in Canada on Monday. 
please take advantage of the opportunity if you haven't already voted in the advance polls. I can't help but think that there are still, in this day and age, many other countries in the world who don't have trustworthy voting systems, or they don't get to vote at all. The right to vote was long fought for in this country, and some folks waited a lot longer than others. I vote in honor of those people who fought so hard for my right to do so. I have voted in every single federal, provincial, and municipal election I have ever been eligible for. Get out and vote! Talk to you again next week. Griffin is winding down, and likely so will the podcast for a little while. In the meantime, thank you to my family, Matt, David, and Heather, and Maggie. Cheers, David and Sharon. Thanks, Phil. Thanks to you for listening. Now, go be fantastic.